Today, we talk about a man who may have had too good of a relationship with his boss. And that man, of course, is Elon Musk. We get into why a Delaware court said it's not okay for your board of directors to regard you as a messiah and what Musk might actually do about that. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. The Honorable Kathleen St. Jude McCormick is arguably the most famous chancellor on the Delaware Court of Chancery at the moment. I know, pretty low bar to clear. But her legal tussles with CEO slash celebrity Elon Musk have definitely put her in a big spotlight. Last week, of course, McCormick voided the $56 billion pay package Musk received from the directors of his electric car company, Tesla, saying the directors were not independent enough from Musk himself to properly grant such a generous sum. We reached out to Musk's attorneys to hear his side of the story, but they didn't get back to us in time. However, Musk hasn't been shy about criticizing McCormick's ruling on his own social media site, and he's also said he wants to move the car maker's place of incorporation out of Delaware, typically seen as the corporate capital of the universe. Today, we're going to be talking about whether Musk can actually do this, and if so, whether Delaware's status as the corporate capital could fade. Jennifer Kay covers Delaware courts for Bloomberg Law, and her colleague Mike Leonard covers corporate litigation. They join me to get into the ramifications of the McCormick ruling. And first, I asked Mike to try to summarize it for me. I can try and summarize it. It was a 200-page opinion, but if I can nutshell it, the first thing she said is that Musk controlled Tesla. And he controlled Tesla with only a 21.9% stake. It's far from the first time that somebody with less than an outright majority stake has been held to be a controlling stockholder, but 21.9 is pretty low. It's a pretty interesting part of the decision. So it seems like the whole ruling was premised on the fact that Musk, despite his minority ownership, was the controlling shareholder. Like Everything flowed from that, right? As with anything in a 200-page opinion, yes and no. My sources told me that um, a lot of the same facts she used to determine that he was the controlling stockholder, that he controlled this process, might have been enough, even if he weren't the controlling stockholder, to show that the board was beholden to him as to this decision. But um, the way the opinion proceeded, this idea that he was the controlling stockholder did do a lot of the work. And so let's dig more into that, Um, this idea that he was the controlling shareholder. And I get the sense that, uh, you know, a large reason for why Chancellor McCormick decided this was just how close the board of directors was to Musk himself. Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, Yeah. So the the key concepts when it comes to um, a board not being independent from a controlling stockholder is this idea of beholdenness. Um, that they really rely on the approval of the controlling stockholder for their livelihoods or for their reputation. In other contexts where somebody with less than an outright majority has been found to be a controlling stockholder, you see relationships like went to the same fancy New England prep school, uh, the same country clubs, ran in the same elite philanthropic circles that came up in a recent a recent case. Here she was really pointed to their um, close dependence on Musk's businesses, not just Tesla, but others. Um, and basically held that they needed his approval as a core part of their professional status, basically. So in other words, they their financial future rested on him making decisions that benefited them. So therefore, they were much more inclined to give Elon Musk what he wanted because they were so not just personally reliant, but financially reliant on him. Is Do I have that right? 
Yeah, and and this was a remember this was a post trial ruling. Um, so a lot of these kinds of issues typically get hashed out earlier in the process. She made these findings of fact based on their their testimony at trial, based on their their text messages. Elon Musk's, uh, I think it's famous now that he said he had been negotiating against myself. Uh, and she also found that the other board members had the same uh, had the same perspective on that, that they basically saw themselves as there to work with Mr. Musk and get him a nice big package rather than to negotiate against him and give him the smallest amount of shareholder money that they could get away with, which is what a you would think of as an arm's length negotiation. So that's really interesting because when I initially heard this, I thought, how can a judge determine how a board feels about a CEO? How can a judge get inside the minds of a board of directors to say like, oh, you're not independent enough because you sort of like this guy too much. But now the way you explain it, I have a much better understanding that it's not just about how they felt, it's about actual tangible financial connections to the CEO, Elon Musk. It's both. It's these structural relationships between Musk and other board members, but it's also the way they they saw him, um, this sort of almost messianic view that not just they have of him, but that a lot of his investors have of him. And, and there's this sort of this cult of Elon. And part of what Musk's uh, attorneys argued that and when they were arguing that this package was indeed fair um, is that some of Tesla's value comes from its products, its cars. Some of it comes from this cult of Elon, from this idea that this guy is here to save the planet from itself. He's here to take us to Mars. There are two ways you can look at that argument. One is that really we need Musk to make Tesla go. And the other is that regardless of the merits, having Musk fully engaged with Tesla all the time is going to keep its stock price high. And the judge kind of turned that argument around on him and basically said, if they, if everyone around you sees you as this superstar CEO, that increases your influence over the company. I, I wonder how much this applies to other companies. Based on what you just said, it seems like this is a situation that may only apply to companies with superstar CEOs, and there aren't a lot of them out there. You know, Musk uh, is probably the most famous one, but, you know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos. I can't think of that many other, you know, really kind of mega famous CEOs. Do you think that because Tesla and because Musk is so unique, that actually this ruling doesn't have a lot of applicability to other companies? I think the most obvious peer comparators you mentioned, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, it doesn't apply to them in the same way because they don't really take a traditional pay package the way Musk does. They get richer when the companies do better. They get richer based on their stock holdings. And that, I think, hurt Musk in this case because they had no, when it came down to proving that the pay package was substantively fair, forget the process, we're down to, was this a fair amount to pay him? There was no comparison point, really. So for the most, for the people that you or I might think of as superstar CEOs, it's not clear how much this would apply, at least as to compensation. There are other ways in which it, it may matter whether they control the company and some of the same factors could come into play. There is sort of a, a, a lower tier of companies that said, okay, we're not going to pay our CEO $50 billion, but if Musk gets $50 billion, maybe we can get away with $2 billion. 
or three billion. And we wouldn't think of them necessarily as superstar CEOs, but they're kind of the founders of these tech unicorns and people like that. If they're thought of as superstar CEOs or treated that way um, by their own corporate boards, I don't think it's far-fetched that this ruling could affect them in future litigation or before then could affect how their boards set their pay to try and head off litigation. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from uh, how this could affect other companies to how this could affect Elon Musk's now least favorite state. Uh, Jennifer, I want to bring you into the conversation. After this ruling from Judge McCormick, Elon Musk tweeted, and I quote, Never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. Uh, what is the reaction among your sources, uh, Jennifer, to that statement? Well, it was a pretty big day in Delaware, I think, when this opinion came out. And I think a lot of the other litigators in Chancery Court are eagerly waiting to see what an appeal looks like in this one and see whether McCormick's ruling will stand. You know, there have been a few people who've said she went a little too far in, in her determining you know, that Musk wielded kind of undue influence as a controlling stockholder. But I would have to say, I, I think I could sum up the response from her chancery colleagues as, I think the legal term is mad respect. Uh, I sat in on a panel where one of the other vice chancellors and the court's magistrates were pitching chancery court to law students looking for internships and clerkships. And they were going down the list of all the things that the court does. And, you know, there's a lot of the corporate stuff, like you can force the purchase of a company, you can grant a business divorce. Um, and once they got to the bottom of the list, they were like, oh, yeah, there's also the power to rescind a $55 billion pay package. Sometimes you get to do that. So they, you know, the court knows that it's kind of a big deal. Um, there's only 43 judicial officers who've ever served on this court. It's really rarefied air that they're breathing, and they're proud of that position. And I think you know, any of the current judges who are serving on this court, if given the opportunity to, to take a big swing like this one, they'll take it. Mm. Well, let's talk about the beneficiary of that uh, mad respect, as you put it, uh, Chancellor McCormick. This is not even Elon Musk's first run in with her. She was also the one who forced him to go ahead with his purchase of the company formerly known as Twitter. Uh, tell me a little bit about her. What's her background and uh, what's she all about? She is, uh, I think it's important to note here that on a court that is not necessarily known for its diversity, it's really only in very recent years that you've seen not your typical older white male judges serving on the court. Uh, McCormick is the first woman to lead the Chancery Court. She's the first woman to hold that position. And she, this is a court where the judges get to choose her, their cases. Um, so. McCormick knew what she was getting into, having run into Musk before on the Twitter case. And, you know, the people who know her super well have, say that this is kind of what she's always been like. She, before she began serving on the Chancery Court, she worked as a legal aid lawyer on housing discrimination issues. And then she worked in corporate law and private practice. Um, she's known for putting some pop culture flair into her opinions. I think this one in particular had Shakespeare and Star Trek. But for, for all that she can add, the, the cultural references that she'll add to her opinions, she's also known for keeping attorneys and witnesses on track in her courtroom. No one's really allowed to meander through the arguments. She's, she'll ask some pretty pointed questions to, to keep things moving along. Elon Musk has said that he uh, wants to and is going to move Tesla out of Delaware. He has already moved X, the company formerly known as Twitter, 
out of Delaware. It is now incorporated in Nevada. However, that's a whole different situation. X is a private company. Tesla is public. It sounds like um, moving the incorporation of a public company is much harder than it seems. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? And uh, and also tell me about TripAdvisor. There is someone who is also trying to move out of Delaware and having a rough time of it. Right, and that's exactly right. The difference between Twitter and Tesla is that Twitter is not public and Tesla is. So any move that you are going to make, I think literally or figuratively, requires a vote from the Tesla shareholders. If Musk succeeds in clearing that hurdle and getting all the shareholders or enough of the shareholders to approve, there's still, I think, a chance that a that a single shareholder or a group of shareholders who object could sue to block the move. And then that would land Musk once again in his least favorite court, the Delaware Court of Chancery. Yeah. I mean, isn't that what's happening with TripAdvisor where, you know, they're trying to move and their own shareholders are saying, uh-uh, no, thank you. That's exactly what's happening with TripAdvisor. Uh, it wants to move to Nevada because its laws are you could say a little more lax than Delaware. It offers more legal protection to directors against investor lawsuits like this one, I think. But in the TripAdvisor case, you have a shareholder saying that the controlling shareholder, the chairman, uh, if he moves the company to Nevada, that's a very self-interested move. And you you should not be able to do that. And what's going to be challenging for the Chancery Court is that it has to walk this line between we need to protect investors from directors who are acting only in their self-interest and appearing to make Delaware into something like a Hotel California where you can incorporate, but you can never leave. If I could jump in on on the the Delaware franchise, as they call it, this idea of nearly 70% of Fortune 500 companies uh, being incorporated there, it's pro-corporate only indirectly in the sense that it's pro-shareholder. So people want to invest in those companies. There's certainty for shareholders. They know what their rights are. There's certainty for boards. They know what they have to do to avoid litigation, and they know exactly what risk they may be taking and pricing in if they don't do those things. And it's, it's really the stability that makes, um, that makes Delaware attractive. And this, this fretting over, over the Delaware franchise and over maybe a race to the bottom with other states that let corporate boards, for instance, waive their duty not to lie, cheat, and steal, in, in so many words. This is a perennial exercise. But the Delaware franchise has endured because it it's attractive to invest in those companies, so companies tend to stay put. Jennifer, I want to give you the last word here. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that people saying, oh, this could be the beginning of the end of Delaware as like the corporate capital of the world are vastly <laughs> overstating that? It sounds like the chancellors on the Delaware court aren't worried about that at all. As you mentioned, they're essentially giving Chancellor McCormick some high fives and backpats. Are they or should they be worried that if Elon Musk succeeds in moving Tesla out of Delaware, that there will be a lot of other companies that follow suit? I think I heard someone say recently that so long as your board isn't acting corruptly, then there's really no reason for the chancery court to get involved. And I I think that would speak to a lot of corporate boards uh, who, if they don't like chancery court, they have an opportunity to stay out of it. And I I think Mike has pointed to a lot of why you have people in Delaware in the first place, which is the stability that's attractive to boards and shareholders alike. And whether Musk moves or not, I don't think that's going to immediately change Delaware being a very tax-friendly state. You have 
so many corporate entities registered there. You've got a body of corporate case law that goes back forever that other states don't have. It's a court designed to fast track decisions and appeals get fast tracked to the Delaware Supreme Court without having to jump through a lot of appellate hoops so you can get resolutions pretty quickly in cases like this. Um, although this case did take a long time to get through Chancery Court. And then you also have a Delaware legislature that's considered very responsive to you know, corporate governance questions. So it's still going to be a place where corporations are going to be for the foreseeable future, I think, because of all of those reasons they have to stay there. And you know, as, as court officers have said, it's not a corporate court, the Court of Chancery. It's a court of equity. And they know they're there to work on difficult cases, and they know they have a long legal history to back them up. Those were the voices of Jennifer Kay and Mike Leonard, both reporters here at Bloomberg Law. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Greg Henderson, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.